Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Publish This Over Lunch with Woodhall Press. I'm David Legere speaking with writer D.W. Hogan. Now, Dawn majored in English at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. She's the mother of four grown children and grandmother to two. She's a full-time author and lives in Huntsville, Alabama with her husband. She's been interviewed on Leah Jones' podcast, Finding Favorites. And her writing has appeared in Hypertext Magazine and TNBBC's The Next Big uh, Book Blog. She's been interviewed with four other talented female authors in the Lit Reactor article, Leaving a Legacy of Equality and Hope. Her debut novel, Unbroken Bonds, releases on October 5th. You can find her at dwhogan.com. Uh, Facebook is dwhogan and on Instagram as Dawn Hogan Author. <laughs> Woo. All right. Uh, Don, thank you for being here today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Happy first day of autumn. I know, right? Uh, it's starting to feel like it, too. Uh, I'm getting in the spooky movie mode. Uh, here's, <laughs> it's actually cool here this morning. Oh, that's good. Mother Nature got the memo. So. <laughs> that's good. Uh, so, uh, you know, let's just kind of start with, for, for everybody listening, uh, would you tell us more about Unbroken Bonds? You know, what's it about? What inspired it? What, what is this book? Um, Unbroken Bonds is the story, a fictional story, of four teenage girls that meet in a home for unwed mothers, um, and they bond in a lifelong friendship. Um, during that time, it's set in 1956, um, it was a terrible thing to be an unwed mother or a teenage uh, pregnant girl. It was it was the worst thing a girl could do. And so these mm -hmm. girls were sent off to these unwed mothers where they were basically forced to give the children up for adoption, the closed adoption. And after they have the children, um, they go on with their lives, you know, supposedly like nothing's ever happened and they keep a secret and this actually happened um mm -hmm. so as they become adults and time goes on the attitudes in this change drastically it's not such mm -hmm. a horrible thing to be a single mother you know teenage pregnancy isn't you know the worst thing that could happen to a girl and and a lot of girls kept their babies um, mm -hmm. So as the times change, they change with it, and then tragedy strikes, and they have to decide if they're going to find the children they were forced to give away. Um, the way this started was a real close friend of mine came to me with her adoption record that had been unsealed from the state of Tennessee and asked me if I would find her birth mother. Mm. And while I was doing the research learning about these homes for unwed mothers and it blew my mind i mean when i was a teenager there were girls at school that were pregnant and it wasn't you know the most awful thing in the world it was just things that happened um mm -hmm. but in 1956 if you were pregnant you were kicked out of school wow because you were a bad influence on other girls so <laughs> um so while i was doing the research i was like oh, i've got to write a story about this and 
let people know what it was like back then because girls today don't know. They, they have no clue that there was such a stigma attached to being an unwed mother. Mm. And, um, you know, the women that actually went through this now are, are elderly. And mm. if we don't tell the story, it's going to get lost. Mm-hmm. Wow. And as you're saying this, I'm just having these thoughts, like even being an unwed, uh, an unwed mother today, I wonder, uh, I think it probably depends on the state that you live in, on the part of the world you live in. So this is still probably very topical, even in certain, in certain areas. And in fact, with, uh, you know, everything going on with abortion in this country and what's happening in Texas, uh, it feels like your book is like on the, on the, the pulse of sort of what's what do they say history is doomed to repeat itself or something yeah. right? if we're not careful if we're not careful um mm -hmm. it it very well could repeat itself mm -hmm. what interesting you, people <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem of filming on a phone right because you start getting the texts coming through <laughs> um, yeah i really feel like with what's happening now um, back in 1956, birth control was not accessible mm -hmm. to unmarried women. Mm -hmm. um, even up until about the 70s, unless you were married, a doctor wouldn't prescribe birth control for you. Mm -hmm. Is outrageous. Um, in the past years, teen pregnancy has gone way down. And I mm -hmm. feel like when states start restricting access to reproductive health, we're going to be in a situation again where you're going to have teenage girls that are pregnant and desperate. Mm -hmm. They're not ready to be mothers. And if they're desperate, they're going to have back alley abortions. Yeah. We're going to be back where we were with unsafe abortions and death. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it's actually I was reading an article that was talking about this, how this is really affecting the poor classes. And, not, you know, if you're rich, you can still afford to fly to whatever state you want to go to. You can still afford to have these things. Who this really impacts is the working class. And, you know, the, and it's just horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, and I think your, your book tackles this, right? Like it right. talks about this. Right. Underserved communities mm -hmm. um, rely on Planned Parenthood not only for abortion, but for birth control, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. screenings, for health services, for prenatal care. Yeah. They do yeah. so much more than just abortion. Oh, yeah. So you're, this, this book is just so in the moment. And uh, that, I think that's exciting. Uh, and you, of course, didn't know this. You've been writing for 17 years, right? right. This is... This is an evolution. And you know what I always say is your, your, a book publishes when it's supposed to publish. And your book is really publishing at a time when, I, I mean, it, it's so relevant for anybody listening. I mean, this is, you know, regardless of your opinions, because, if, you know, I teach and abortion is always, you know, so strongly divided. Whatever your issues on abortion, I think anybody can read this book and take away insight into the history of this own of our country 
and the dangers of uh, even the adoption system and the shame attached to this. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. Go uh, ahead. Force young women to have babies mm-hmm. and get them up for adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, here a young girl keeps a baby that she's not ready to raise and doesn't have mm-hmm. the skills. We're going to flood an already broken foster care system. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I was, it's, you've got it. I mean, you're right there. I was, this morning I was teaching uh, my students and we were talking about quitting. We read this wonderful article about quitting and how there's just this negative stigma around something when somebody needs to quit something and how as a society it's, you know, you know, uh, quitters never win, and you can just you must work till you die. It's this idea that you can't ever leave something. And similarly, we we create these preconceived notions of what must be. And I like that your book sort of tackles free form of thinking, and you're doing it through a historical lens. And I think that's very clever. Um, it's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, so, so well, you're, you've been writing for 17 years, and what's it? This is kind of what I'm curious about, is what it's like to look back at the writer you were with the writer you are today. And are there ever times uh, you miss the writer from 17 years ago? The reason I say this is I often look back at my earlier writing, and I feel proud um, at how I've grown as a writer. And I go, all right, this is, this is wonderful. But then I also miss a little bit of that raw spirit i guess that i was then so when i look at my writing even from like 15 years ago 20 years ago it reads just it's almost like i'm reading a different person like i can see elements of me in it but it's it's just it's mind-blowing so what's it like for you looking at that evolution as a writer 17 years and with this being your debut novel (laughs) well this was actually the second one that i wrote um which you know, there was a lot of passion that went into mm-hmm. the book because of the depth of the story and affected so many people. So, um, yeah, some of the early writings, I'm like, oh, man, this is so trite. I mean, it's just, you know. But do you ever do you ever miss it? Like when you look at the earlier stuff, is there do you feel like you've not only evolved as a writer, but like sometimes it's like reading a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. I I I think I appreciate um, with time mm-hmm. <laughs> comes experience. Yeah, comes uh, confidence. Yeah, and I'm a much better writer than I yeah. was when I first started. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I've listened to other writers and and how they work and and. You know, I've learned a lot in the 17 years that I've been writing. Um, I think I'm more of a raw writer now than I was. Interesting. Um, so it's, it's opened you up. The yeah. process of writing has made you even, maybe you a- approached it uh, a little more conservative. And now you've become right. more raw over the experience. That's wonderful. Right. And, you know, giving myself the freedom to just really be honest. Yeah. You know? yeah. And the thing is, if you're not honest in what you're writing, people know. And yeah. like, you know, this isn't any good. It's not honest. 
you know. Exactly. Yeah. I think in the writing, I was more afraid of how people would look at me personally mm. if I wrote something that was like, oh my gosh, you can't say that. Mm. You, you're a wife, you're a mother, you know, you, you can't. Yeah. But if it's honest, you have to say it. You do. Writing is, you know, truth, right? And, and uh, it's, I remember my mentors over and over again, if you aren't, if what you're writing isn't making you slightly like uneasy, yeah. then why are you writing it, right? It's that idea that like what you're writing should make you maybe even uncomfortable and it should be pushing you in areas that you don't want to go. And that's where you usually find your, you know, wellspring of uh, <laughs> inspiration, I guess, right? Right. right. Yeah. And, you know, I found that you really have to be deep in your story. You've got to yeah. be there as the writer in the room, in the scene. If you're writing something heartbreaking and you don't cry while you're writing it, your yeah. reader's not going to cry when they read it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that gets me into this idea of... Um, you know, writers are often told, uh, write what you know, right? This has become a, a common thing. I've heard this over and over again, write what you know. How do you feel about that? You know, I mean, you're, uh, you, you write fiction, but you still draw from what you know. What are your thoughts on writing what you know? <laughs> um, in Unbroken Bonds, there is the friendship between these four women. Mm -hmm. And I've had those kind of friendships. You know, I've had the kind of friendships that, you know, you can be you, you can say, you know, whatever is going on, and there isn't judgment there. That yeah. person knows you, they care about you, and, you know, they're there for you. And, and I mean, I've been the type of friend that, you know, if I've somebody's life is spiraling out of control and they call me at 2 o'clock in the morning, I will pick up the phone. Yeah, I'll talk, yeah. and I'll talk them off the ledge. You know, I've had those kind of friendships. So a lot of the dialogue in the book is conversations I would have with my friends. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, you know their secrets. You know who they are deep down. And so mm -hmm. that part was easy. Now, I wasn't born in 1956. I wasn't <laughs> alive. So mm -hmm. I've had to do the research. I mean, I didn't know about the homes for unwed mothers. Mm -hmm. And I really had to research those. You know, I read um, Ann Fessler's The Girls That Went Away and, and Ricky Sollinger's uh, Wake Up Little Susie. And I spent hours on the Internet <coughs> actual experiences of these women so that I, I was really educated on it. And. I've had to look at uh, the slang <clears throat> people used in the 1950s and 60s um, and what kind of cars mm -hmm. they did. Because, you know, I couldn't say, you know, Mary went out in 1959 and bought herself a Mustang, right? Yeah, yeah. Ford didn't make Mustangs until 1964. <laughs> so if you... If, accurate about the times and what was there and and the music they listened to and things like that people are going to call you out on it oh absolutely i once i once had an author there was a night sky picture on a cover 
and it was set in a certain time period and this and that. And somebody actually uh, went out of their way. They knew that that night sky, uh, the, the, the way the stars were aligned, were not indicative of the night sky of that location during that time period. Granted, it was just one person, the average yeah. person wouldn't, but it was still, it was like, whoa. Um, so th there is that, you have to be honest, right? To your earlier point, you have to be a truthful writer. And sometimes, you know, that truth comes through research. So you write what you know in terms of friendships, in terms of what you do know, of course, you bring that to your tool set, right? But you're still pulling in the research to create the world to write your novel. Right. I mean, I, I haven't given up a baby for adoption, mm -hmm. but I've known loss. Yeah. So yeah. you draw on the emotions that you know that you've experienced and you can apply them to the situations in the story. Interesting. So I, I guess, you know, my follow-up to this is what are your writing habits, right? So you're, you're clearly a voracious writer. Um, what is it for you? Do you sit down every morning? Do you set aside time each day? Like what's your writing look like? Um, no, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm project driven really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the last six or seven months I've really concentrated on marketing the book. Yep. Um, I always have a novel going, you know, I'm always writing something new, but I don't, force myself to say, sit down and write a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. um, and that being said, when I'm, you know, I have a life, I have a house I have to take care of. I've got responsibilities, I, you know. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when I'm folding laundry or I'm doing other chores, I'm thinking about that book that I'm writing and I'm plotting it in my head. And when I go to sleep at night, a lot of nights I'm thinking about where this book is going to go mm. and I experience that if I'm stuck on something and I don't know where I'm going, I'll think about it as I'm going to sleep. And when I wake up in mm. the morning, I've got a solution to the problem. My yeah. mind works it out while I'm sleeping. So yeah, I even though that. I'm not at the keyboard, I write a lot in my head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, in fact, there was, there's an article on this. It's called Precrastination and Procrastination. And the, a lot of times people think that uh, precrastinators, that's the way to go, but it's not. So if you're, let's say you've got uh, a book that you're writing or essay for class, hurrying to write it a couple weeks ahead of time, a couple years ahead of time, whatever the case might be, actually isn't the way to go. Um, procrastinators, that's not the way to go either. Don't write in the last minute, but start writing. And then let your mind, to your point, think about it as you're driving your car, as you're doing laundry, as you're sleeping. And even though you're not physically writing, you're mentally mapping it out. So when you sit down to write again, it just takes right off. It's there. And that's so exciting. Yeah, it's there. And I mean, yeah. I've, done, I've done NaNoWriMo, you know, the National Novel Writing Month. I've done that yeah. for years. Now, during that time, you've got to write a minimum of, 1600 words a day or mm -hmm. I'm going to make it. So mm -hmm. there are times that I, I sit down and I really push myself um, to go ahead and, and, you know, put in mm -hmm. the count for the day. Yeah. Um, 
I don't have too many times where I'm just staring at a blank page and I don't know what I'm going to do. It, you know, that whole idea of writer's block, I think, is also kind of a, a myth because there's always something we could be writing, right? Like, even if it's just writing about how, I don't really know what to write about. But there's still this act that you could just sit down and, and write, right? Write poems. I think that's a great way to get through. If you're working on a novel, and I've used this my own, with my own writing, I'll set the novel aside, and I might just spend a couple days just working on a poem. You know, just like completely detach from the world that you're in and put yourself into something else and then see what comes from it. Yeah, let, um, let another part of your brain work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess I'm curious then, you mentioned your, you have other novels. Is there anything that you want to share that you're currently working on that you're excited about? Um, I'm working on a novel that I'm calling Shattered Glass. Mm. And it is about a train wreck of a girlfriend who every life she touches, yeah. she screws it up. I mean, <laughs> um, her and her name is Crystal. Mm -hmm. So shattered glass. That's um, good. So, yeah, I mean, that one's kind of fun to, yeah. it, it's, it's a little bit gone girl. It's, mm. you know, um type of type of character just manipulative and yeah self serving yeah. yeah she's not nice um <laughs> one thing that she has going for her is she's absolutely gorgeous mm. she is so beautiful. on the outside but not on the inside right, right on the outside she is gorgeous so she gets away with things mm. because people see the exterior and yeah you know a lot of the stuff she does she's a little bit teflon you know it just yeah, flies off of her because of that so yeah and i mean um one book that i have that's pretty much ready to go is a serial killer book and it's mm -hmm. called intentionally and um you know that was set in boston which i've been to boston once and mm -hmm. uh, the internet is such a great thing. Because, <laughs> you, know, you can you can get online and you can look up a restaurant and know what's on the menu and from the, mm -hmm. the website you know what it looks like inside the restaurant. Yeah. I mean I don't know how writers did it before we had the internet. Um, a lot of driving. Like Stephen King, you know, writing uh, the Shining drove to Colorado and stayed at the Stanley Hotel, right? You know, yeah. so it was, it was a lot of, like, driving. But back then, I think publishers and so forth also paid huge travel budgets. And, like, I would have loved to have been, like, a travel writer in, like, the 70s. I think that would have been amazing. Like, <laughs> flying me all over the world, and I'll be doing all these great travel write-ups. <laughs> Spending a lot of time in libraries, though. Yeah, libraries are good. Libraries. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad I'm a writer now, because it's so easy mm. to do your research. Yeah, absolutely. And so and writers always laugh about, you know, if the FBI ever looked at their search history, uh, <laughs> we'd end up in jail for some of the yeah. stuff we looked up. I know, right? It's searching, you know, how to kill a husband with da 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 da. I'd be like, oh, all right, well, that's interesting. Listen, <laughs> My husband came into the kitchen one time and I was measuring a butcher knife. 
And he's like, what are you doing? I said, research. Oh, and research. But he tells it later. It's like, yeah, I sleep with one eye open after that. But, <laughs> you know, and, and things like it takes 11 pounds of pressure to actually strangle someone. So I know. From, from you've, got, you've got all these uh, horrific knowledge, and I love it. Uh, <laughs> So that kind of brings us to the end. And I always, I, on that note, uh, I always ask everybody a couple things. One, um, this, I'm kind of switching it up. I'm curious, what are you watching? Uh, it doesn't have to be Netflix, but like what's your go-to show these days? We just finished watching uh, Yellowstone. Yeah, on, uh, what is that, Paramount or Disney Plus yeah. or something like that? Yeah, yeah really, Paramount, yeah. Really like that one. Um, now... We're kind of hooked on only murders in the building. That's Ooh. and it's uh, Steve Martin, <sighs> Martin Short are in it, and yeah. it's entertaining. And <laughs> we're also watching um, Nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah, Old Kidman, and um, everybody's hooked on that. I haven't watched it yet, but I've I've heard everybody that watches it hooked. But we, I mean. In the last year and a half, we have binge-watched a lot of shows. Same, same. Yeah. Lot, lot of, lot of, lot of reading and a lot yeah. of TV shows, uh, yeah. which, is, which is good. I'm, I'm, hap I'm happy with both. But um, what do you like, coffee or tea? <laughs> coffee. Coffee. First stop Interesting. is coffee. Um, coffee. I only drink hot tea if I've got a sore throat. And, ah, interesting. But keep in mind, I live in Alabama. And everywhere you go, there's sweet tea. <laughs> and that's that iced tea. Yeah. Tea, and it's served everywhere all year long. So <laughs> if you go out. Sweet to tea. Yeah. I, so I went to Florida. Uh, in my family uh, live in Florida, some of them, and they have a house. And I remember the first time I had sweet tea because I asked for an iced tea. And she was funny. This was years ago. She goes, um, we have sweet tea, darling. And I go, all right. And, and so sweet tea. It was sugar. It was like, I just started going, I go, admittedly, this is delicious. I go, but this is just straight up sugar. Because <laughs> here it's like iced tea. You have to ask for it to be sweetened if you want it sweet. It's literally just cold tea. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> and it is sweet. So. Oh. But it is, it's like addictive in that way that I imagine, like, I'm like, oh, this is so bad for me. I know it, but there is something compelling. <laughs> it goes with everything. It does. It does. Um, all right. So um, uh, one piece of advice for anybody listening. This is the last question. Um, what, what do you have a takeaway? I would say, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, at a job or writing, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Because mm -hmm. if you think it's too scary and you think you can't, you're right, you can't. Mm -hmm. Because you try. Um, but put yourself out there because more times than not, the answer is gonna be yes. And if yeah. it's no, if it's no, you haven't lost anything you already had. I, that is excellent advice every door is shut until you open it right and sometimes it might just be locked but you still try to open it anyway <laughs> right and you know working on this book and getting endorsements for the book and and getting you know people to promote the book 
more times than not, people have said yes. And that, yeah. you know, that just makes me bolder to go to the next step and, and ask the next person. So I love that. I love that about you and that, that putting yourself out there. Even today's podcast, you said something last week. Hey, hey Dave, uh, you, you emailed me and, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And now here we are. Like you're always putting yourself out there. And I think that's absolutely in today's day and age so, so necessary, uh, especially as everything just gets so 